Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. By the summer of 1942, Malta had been under siege by Axis forces for over a year, and the situation on the island was bleak to say the least food and fuel almost exhausted. I was on the island last week as I was researching a new article in a new TV series we're doing and I was speaking to a man who lived through the bombing and the siege of Malta and he's got a bar that's just decked with all of the munitions all the way around. I mean if you're going to have weapons of war all the way around then it has to be a place you need to drink because it's a fascinating but a saddening view and as he called them they are sad horrific weapons of death and destruction and it truly was that case in Malta this vital foothold that had to be held up at all costs because it was helping to shut off Rommel's supplies that he needed to win North Africa the planes and the submarines that set off from Malta were able to target specifically his fuel supplies Rommel needed this for his tanks he needed to move at pace he needed to keep Blitzkrieg going and so if it wasn't for the efforts of Malta and keeping Malta going, then we might not have won North Africa. And so Churchill had a decision to make. What did he need to do? What did he need to release in terms of resources to keep this island safe? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast. And I could talk about this all day, but to take us through this history, we have the legendary Sir Max Hastings, who joins Dan to tell him about Operation Pedestal. It was in August 1942 that four aircraft carriers, two battleships, seven light cruisers, 32 destroyers, 11 submarines, and a host of smaller vessels accompanied by aircraft escorted just 14 merchant ships as they attempted to battle their way through from Gibraltar to Malta. This is a truly fascinating episode, so please go and drop us a five-star review with just one click on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to, to write a review as well. And remember, you can always get in contact with us directly. Tell us what you enjoy. Tell us what you want more of. Tell us the topics that we need to cover. But now here is Max Hastings on the incredible bravery and tenacity of those who took part in Operation Pedestal. So, Max, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Always a pleasure, Dan. Well, this time it's a great pleasure for me because you're getting your feet wet. You're talking about the Navy in this one, finally. 
well, I've written lots of books about the British Army and the Royal Air Force. And I've always wanted to do a full-length book about the Royal Navy. And I looked for one episode as a sort of platform on which to talk about the whole ethos of the Royal Navy in World War II. Because I've argued in several books that I think the Royal Navy was Britain's most effective fighting service of the war, more so than the British Army, and yes, even more so than the Royal Air Force. And the Navy, in a way, they get less credit for a lot of the stuff they did, because so much of it was repetitive. All those convoys, all those evacuations in the early stages of the war at Dunkirk, and then getting out of all sorts of other places, getting out of Greece, getting out of Crete, and so on, and then convoying all those invasion forces. They did all sorts of stuff, but somehow they never got quite the credit, I don't think, at the end of the war that they deserved. Pedestal such an interesting episode. Let's start with why it needed to happen. I mean, Malta was in the most ridiculously vulnerable place. I mean, it's madness that the Germans and Italians weren't able to neutralise it. Everybody thought at the beginning of World War II that the British couldn't hope to defend Malta if Germany and Italy were against them, because obviously Italian air bases are just 60 miles away from Malta's targets. But Churchill was determined, he was always determined, that this bastion of Britishness had got to be held. And in 1942, his own position, people always think that 1940 was bottom of the barrel for Churchill. It wasn't. 1942 was bottom of the barrel, because by then the British people were getting exhausted. And although the prime minister kept making these wonderful speeches about all these glorious victories that were going to come, all he seemed able to deliver were defeats. And in that summer of 1942, we'd already had humiliation in Malaya and Singapore, a larger British army being defeated by a smaller Japanese one. Tobruk had fallen to a smaller German army. Churchill was at a pretty low ebb. And when he was told that Malta would have to surrender in September, because its 300,000 people could no longer be fed, he said, somehow, we have got to get the supplies to Malta at any cost. Now, the admirals thought this was bonkers. The admirals thought that after so many losses already, after so many disastrous convoys, that to risk uh, the sort of big ships that one would have to send to escort one more convoy through to Malta just wasn't worth it. And there's no doubt in my mind the admirals would have said, nope, we're not going to do this. But Churchill said, we're going to do this at any cost. So the largest fleet Britain sent to the Western War at any time in the war, two battleships, four aircraft carriers, seven cruisers, 30-something destroyers, eight submarines, all deployed to supply Malta before the leaves fell. Is this a very interesting example of where decision-making should sit at political and military levels? Were the admirals right? It was a gigantic risk to these capital ships and the merchant fleet to send this convoy for sort of political reasons? Or do you think Churchill was right? Because politicians have a grasp of the more intangible when it comes to warfare. Historians have been divided ever since. Some very distinguished historians describe Pedestal as a British defeat because the losses were so heavy. I don't agree. I think Churchill was right. What I was trying to do with all my books is to close my eyes to the 21st century and try and remember how things were then in August 1942. Now, we now know that the Russians achieved this terrific victory at Stalingrad in the winter of 1942. We know that Montgomery won the Battle of Alamein. We know that in November 1942, 
British and American forces landed in North Africa and so on and so forth. In August 1942, they didn't know this stuff. The war was still in the balance. But at that time, all everybody could see was there was a good chance that the forces of evil, Germany and Italy, might well prevail. And so it was in that situation that Churchill felt it was vital to demonstrate to the world that Britain had the will to fight. Because you've got to remember, the Americans, for example, were beginning to think we were pretty pathetic. American opinion polls, who did American people think were trying hardest to win the war? But of course, they said mostly Americans. But after the Americans, they said the Chinese. And after the Chinese, they said the Russians. And the British came nowhere because of all these defeats. Stalin mocked Churchill. He said, your Navy runs away because of the disaster to convoy PQ-17. So Churchill felt that Britain had everything to prove, both about its willingness to prevail, but also about its willingness to suffer. So he was much less frightened of losses than the admirals were. It was this astonishing assemblage of ships, the kind of carrier group that many people think were only seen in um, the Pacific War. Well, to send four aircraft carriers, and at the beginning, when they set out across the Atlantic, it was five British aircraft carriers, and Britain only owned seven carriers at that point, that we'd already lost four in the course of the war. And these carriers were absolutely vital to carrying on the war. So all the admirals could see was that if things went disastrously wrong, you could lose most of Britain's remaining carrier force. But the only way they had a hope they knew of getting to Malta was if they sent these carriers with the fighters on board to defend them against Axis air attack, because the Axis had more than 600 aircraft, fighters, torpedo bombers, high-level bombers, at bases all around the Mediterranean. And sometimes when fleets put to sea, nobody was sure whether there was going to be a battle. When Pedestal put to sea, they knew there was going to be an almighty battle. They knew that Axis German and Italian submarines were going to be there. They knew all these aircraft were going to attack. They thought that the Italian surface fleet might well come out and attack. So they had to send a force capable of taking on all this. But the price of sending all this stuff was all this stuff in the Admiral's eyes. And the Admiral's, I don't doubt if any of them slept at night all the time Pedestal was at sea thinking about just how bad things could be. And of course, on the second day in the Mediterranean, the first day, nothing happened. And some of the young men on the ships, this beautiful August weather in the Mediterranean, they began to think maybe this is going to be a sunshine cruise. The second morning, they're watching one of the carriers flying off Spitfires that are flying straight through to Malta to reinforce Malta. And while they're watching all these nice Spitfires taking off from one of the carriers, suddenly everybody starts pointing at another carrier. The carrier Eagle is slowly starting to tilt to port. And within a couple of minutes, it turns over. It's been hit by four torpedoes from a German U-boat. And eight minutes after that ship was sunk, all that's left is a lot of heads bobbing in the water. And that put the fear of God not only into the admirals, but into every man of that fleet. There were about 20,000 men in that British fleet sailing to Malta. And nearly all of them witnessed, all the ones who were on the upper decks, witnessed this terrifying sight. This huge aircraft carrier just going boom. And from that moment, Admiral Seyfried, who was in command, he knew that some admirals are always remembered, not for their great victories, but for their great defeats. And three or four months earlier, that the battleship Prince of Wales, the battlecruiser Repulse, had been sunk in about 15 minutes by Japanese torpedo bombers, and Admiral Phillips, who was in command, all everybody was going to remember him for was losing these two ships in the morning. 
tie for it that day. Right, he's lost Eagle. What happens next? Well, you'll tell us what's happened next, I hope. But just quickly remind us, you've got all these naval vessels, but of course, the main event, in a curious way, are the merchant ships they're escorting. Tell me about them. There were 14 of them. There was one tanker, very strong American-built ship, Ohio, with a British crew aboard. But the tanker was vital because if the tanker didn't make it to Malta, there was going to be no more fuel to fuel the fighters to defend the place, to keep all the vital defense equipment going, to fuel the vehicles. So that tanker with 12,000 tons of fuel aboard had to get through come what may. And then you've got these 13 so-called cargo liners with 80,000 tons of cargo aboard. And to me, it's miraculous that they find guys, civilians, of course, to man these ships because Everybody knew that the Malta run was one of the most deadly. Everybody knew that these ships, their best speed is about 15 or 16 knots, 20 miles an hour on land, that they know they're going to have half the Italian and German Air Force on top of them. And these guys, especially the guys in the engine room, they never get enough credit that if you are down by London Bridge and you go on board HMS Belfast, the museum ship cruiser that's still there, and you go down to the engine room there and you think, you're right down below the waterline. You've got two inches of steel between you and any torpedo mine that hits you. One of the pilots who was on the deck of Eagle when she turned turtle and went down, and he said one of the lingering memories was as they scramble for their lives to get off that ship as she tipped over, that they hear the screams coming up the ventilators and the terrible shouts from all the poor guys trapped in the engine rooms, of course, most of whom died. So it's not surprising on those merchant ships, blokes, when they got a little bit of sleep, they were wearing their life jackets and their bunks. They had all the lifeboats slung out on the davits, ready to drop immediately, because they knew that statistically, if the ship was hit, they probably got maximum 15 minutes to get off. But of course, you expect warships and the Royal Navy to go where they're sent. But the fact they could find all these merchant seamen to crew those ships for piddling sums of money, they weren't paid much. And to go out there and do this, those were incredibly brave guys. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. For when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After the loss of the Eagle, things start going wrong for the convoy. Reading your book, I was struck, it feels like, perhaps this is how war always is, but it feels like one of those where the side that makes the fewest mistakes ends up coming out on top. And what's also unfair is that, I mean, if you think of it as a football match, and a lot of those naval officers were very keen football fans, that one thing that's very tough is you can go on successfully defending your goal most of the day. And then suddenly, somebody gets lucky. Whoom. And that's what happened the second day. 11th of August, they lose Eagle. The 12th, there's action all day. Continuous procession of enemy bombers, U-boats, um, depth charges going off everywhere, fighters scrambling into the sky all the time, dog fights over the convoy, hour after hour. And yet, by tea time that day, by about 5 o'clock, all that had happened, one merchant ship had been hit, was still afloat. They'd sunk two Italian submarines, rammed by Royal Navy destroyers. They'd seen off a hell of a lot more. So by the second day, all right, they'd lost Eagle, but they felt that things were really not going too badly. I mean, everyone was exhausted. They'd fired tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition. We'd lost some fighters. The other side had lost aircraft, but it wasn't too bad. But then, the 24 hours that followed, were among the bloodiest in the history of the Royal Navy. First of all, Lotus Duca dive bombers descend on another carrier, Indomitable. And again, the whole fleet's watching while this stream of Stuka dive bombers just dived almost vertically out of the sky onto Indomitable. And they hit her three times. And she's submerged in spray and smoke and flame. And everybody thought she's going to go the same way as Eagle. They thought this is the end. Well, actually, miraculously, after 10 minutes, um, desperate suspense for every man in that fleet, the signal flashes from the bridge of indomitable situation under control. She'd lost 50 men dead. She could no longer fly off aircraft, but she was still afloat. But at that point, Seifert decided he got no choice. He couldn't risk his big ships, his battleships and carriers anymore. He got to turn them around towards Gibraltar. And so from there on, from about 7 o'clock, on that second day, 
the cruisers, the destroyers, and the merchantmen are on their own. And they felt jolly lonely. Every man who was there recorded, as he saw the battleships and the carriers and their escorts disappearing in the opposite direction. They felt pretty lonely. But the first hour after they took, the two forces separated, nothing much happened. And Admiral Burrow, Harold Burrow, was in command of the cruiser squadron right through to Malta. He must have thought, well, maybe we've seen the last of the other side for today. But then, wham, 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 in the space of a minute or two, one of the most devastating submarine attacks of the war. The British have got this terrible habit of regarding the Italians ridiculous. Italians had some very brave seamen, and especially some very brave submarine captains. And one of their submarines, Axum, commanded by a guy called Farini, he got right in close. Somehow the Astic submarine detectors uh, don't pick him up. One torpedo hits the cruiser Cairo, which has to be sunk. Another torpedo hits Burroughs' flagship, Nigeria, which loses 50 people killed. And the Admiral has to transfer to a destroyer. And Nigeria just about manages to stagger back to Gibraltar. But that's the end of her for the battle. And the third one hits the vital tanker Ohio. And when they see the flames shooting up in the sky, again, every man of the fleet thinks, well, that's the end of that, a tanker. But incredibly, they managed to get the fires out with a bit of help from all the seawater pouring into the side of the ship. And she was one of the strongest ships of her kind in the world. And she'd been built brilliantly compartmentalized so that even though, of course, one compartment's gone and all the fuel in it's gone and so on, all the rest are still there. So nobody was more surprised than Dudley Mason, the captain of Ohio, but they're still there. But here is Admiral Burrow thinking, God, a bit more of this, and we really are in trouble. But they thought, well, dusk is coming, the end of the day. Not a bit of it. Even as they're getting themselves sorted out after this devastating submarine attack, and perhaps nobody's paying as much attention as they should to the radar, massed enemy air attack. The same again, a torrent of bombs falling down upon them and torpedoes. Ship after ship is hit. Three merchantmen go to the bottom, uh, have to be sunk. Others are hit. It's a devastating half hour. Well, then darkness falls. And they think, well, perhaps you're going to have a bit of peace now. And by now, Burrow must have been a pretty rattled guy. I mean, like all these, you don't get to be an admiral in the Royal Navy of that period unless you're pretty tough. But as darkness fell, and they're still steaming east towards Malta, and they've got a couple hundred miles to go, and maybe they're thinking in the hours of darkness they're going to have some peace. But then, what? Massed Italian and German torpedo craft start attacking. And all through the hours that followed, through the hours of dark, these torpedo boats come zooming at 40 or 50 miles an hour out of the darkness, loose their torpedoes, hit and hit and hit. Merchant ships hit, merchant ships sinking, a cruiser so badly hit that it has to be sunk. When dawn comes, the cook on one of the destroyers goes down below to the mess deck, packed with hundreds of survivors from sunken ships. And he says cheerfully, uh, the cook standing there in his apron, he said, well, we don't know whether there's any convoy left after the night. Well, there was a bit of convoy left, but by that morning of the 13th, the British had suffered devastating losses. Militarily, what's going on here? You're quite critical of the carrier-based interceptors, the fighters. You also point out that the anti-aircraft fire from the ships sounds kind of morale-boosting and lets you think you're doing something. But 
didn't really do much against enemy air attacks. If it didn't actually shoot down many aircraft, does it at least break up the attacks? The best thing the barrages do, and the fighters, is they break up the enemy attack. The tragedy for the Royal Navy was they had some good aircraft carriers, but they never really picked the right fighters. And they went into the war with some good aircraft carriers, but very slow, not very effective fighters. For example, on pedestal, they had some hurricanes, but not nearly enough of them. And even the hurricanes, which had been great in the Battle of Britain two years earlier, were very slow at getting up to altitude to engage these German Junkers 88 bombers. And again and again, the pilots, and don't get me wrong, I'm not critical of the fighter pilots of the fleet air arm, were incredibly brave. And they did everything that, that man could do in fighting off these attacks. But they were only as good as the fighters they were flying. And a lot of their fighters were just slower than the attacking aircraft. But they did terrific stuff. The barrage, I'm afraid, one finds again and again in wars, and even the Americans, with their huge fleets, 1945, they found that gunfire, the sky is a very big place. And the only really effective way of shooting down attacking aircraft is with good fighters. And of course, by 1945, the Americans had these huge carrier groups and hundreds of fighters. They could put enormous forces of fighters into the air. And the British, every single attack on pedestal, the fleet air arms fighters were heavily outnumbered by the Germans and Italians coming in. So all the time they were struggling against the odds. And I think it's miraculous what they did, but they were right up against it. Let's skip to the end. How many of those vital merchant marine ships got into the Grand Harbour of Malta? Four of the 13 merchant vessels got into Grand Harbour Malta, and they delivered 32,000 tonnes of stores. Another 52,000 tonnes of stores were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Every single ship, one could write a book about its experiences. But one of the most extraordinary episodes was the tanker Ohio, which was hit again and again. And by the morning of the 13th, it had been hit by air attacks so often its engines were stopped. And it had a crashed German aircraft on its foredeck and another crashed Italian aircraft on its stern deck. And the last two days, it crept towards Malta with the destroyer lashed to each side. And how they made it, I mean, at a speed of sort of five or six knots, creeping across the Mediterranean, every minute expecting more submarines or torpedo craft, which miraculously didn't attack. But they had to put up with a, more and more air attacks. And of course, every man on those ships knew that if the enemy got a direct hit on Ohio, that the chances were that not only would Ohio go up, but the destroyers alongside it to go up too. And there was a sort of madness. I mean, everybody was sleepwalking. They were so exhausted. Some of the gunners on Ohio who were sent aboard from the warship, they found a case of party hats. Some of them were manning their guns dressed in party hats. Some of the others got at the rum, and some blokes so drunk they could hardly stand. And the captain of one of the destroyers, Penn, dealing with all his sleepwalking crews, he brought his gramophone up on the bridge and linked it to the ship broadcast system. And he played the most cheerful record he got, which is Glenn Miller's Chattanooga Choo Choo. And he played it again and again and again and again. And you can imagine those scenes on those ships. And it was a sort of miracle. They figured out that Ohio was sinking. But the captain of the tanker, 
Dudley Mason. He said that it was sinking so slowly that if they could just keep her afloat for another 12 hours, with all the pumps going from the destroyers, pumping out water, they could just make it. And they did just make it. So that on the morning of the 15th of August, when everybody had given up on them, and Churchill had been told to expect that Ohio would go to the bottom, they creep into Grand Harbor. And just as the destroyers cast loose, and just as Ohio reached her berth, whoop, she slumps onto the bottom of Grand Harbor, but it doesn't matter anymore because they can offload 85% of her cargo survived, all the aviation spirit, all the rest of it makes it. It was one of the great epics of the Second World War. Ohio is one of the great epics and makes up for some slightly premature abandonments of some of the other vessels on pedestal. Well, you can't expect everybody to be heroes. And the one thing one has to make a wry remark about, there's a very old saying that every soldier, sailor and airman knows, that the only person who knows what a decoration is worth is the man who won it, or nowadays the woman as well. Because sometimes wonderfully deserving people get decorations, and sometimes wonderfully undeserving people get them for political reasons. And that happened on, on pedestals, that I feel captains and officers on the warships were almost always got the lion's share of the gongs, and the poor devils in the engine rooms who were exposed to most risk and achieved some miracles, especially after the carrier indomitable was hit. So they got very few awards. The Merchant Navy Commodore on board one of the warships, he lost his nerve in the middle of the night when they were all being attacked by torpedo craft. And he said, this is no good. We're going to turn around and sail to Gibraltar. And he, with two merchant ships following him, started back towards Gibraltar. And only when a couple of destroyers chased after them and said, oh, no, you don't, they made him turn around. And those ships eventually did make it to Malta. But the convoy commodore, he got a DSO along with some of the captains who've done incredibly brave things. And of course, it was in the Royal Navy tradition that you don't wash your dirty linen in public. When I was reading your book, I was very struck by, this is a battle, unlike the Battle of the Saints in the American War of Independence or Trafalgar, where there's sort of tactical brilliance on the British side. This is a battle where the Royal Navy kind of grind out a victory by just being very, very good seamen. You know, you think about the Ohio, you mentioned at dawn when there were cables hanging off the side, they'd taken it under tow five times, the tow kept giving way, they lashed destroyers to it. It strikes me as a product of centuries of British naval excellence. And just from the senior officers down to the stokers and the ship's boys, there was just this sort of ability, a seamanship that made the Navy a very potent force. I agree with you 100%. What one was seeing in the Mediterranean in August 1942 was the heritage of all those hundreds of years. And where you're absolutely right is that no great tactical genius was called for in the Mediterranean. All you had to do was keep plugging on despite these terrible losses. But one has to remember that successive previous convoys to Malta had turned back after suffering lesser losses than those that fell on pedestals. But Churchill had given the order. Churchill said, at any cost, this convoy has got to get through. But you think of those guys on those ships, and especially the guys in the engine room. And after you've seen nine out of 14 of the merchant vessels go to the bottom, one or two of them blowing up. It was a scene on the morning of the 13th when one of the merchant ships was hit by a German bomb and blew up. And because there was a lot of petrol on her deck, 
the whole sea for about a square mile was just blazing sea. And there were survivors in it. And the Admiral sends a signal to one of the destroyers, Ledbury, and he says, survivors, but don't go into the flame. And Roger Hill, the captain of Ledbury, took absolutely no notice. He just drove his little destroyer straight into the flames with these ratings playing hoses to keep the flames at bay while they dragged as many men as they could out of the water. And everybody watching, I mean, just watching in awe of this little destroyer in the midst of this blazing sea. And yes, this is the heritage of 200 years that you know, if you're an officer of the Royal Navy, you know that this is what's expected of. And the same way, Ledbury's cook, who was the captain of a water polo team, a guy called Charlie Walker, in the middle of all this, he came up on deck and he takes a look at what's going on. And he just takes off his apron and dives into the sea and starts pulling out survivors. These people, yes, this is hundreds of years of the Royal Navy maintaining a great tradition, and they know this is what they're expected to do. And it's marvellous. So let's just finish on Churchill again, if we may. There's so much hagiography around Churchill, there's so much hindsight, there's so many debates raging in the present. But it strikes me one of his great strengths was, as we've talked about, his understanding, his instinctive grasp of how the battlefield and the global political landscape interacted with each other. Churchill understood the business of war better than any of his service chiefs. And he had a sense of the reality. War is about fighting. It was a very good scene I've recorded in the book that in 1941, his private secretary, Doc Caldwell, went in to Steve Churchill to report that two cruisers had been lost in the Mediterranean, the Battle of Creek. And he commiserated with the prime minister, said, so sorry, prime minister. And Churchill turned on him. He said, what do you think we build the ships for? And he went on to give him a little lecture about how deplorable it was. The admirals were always so frightened of losing ships. And Churchill understood you cannot win wars without fighting and dying. And this is an incredibly painful, brutal lesson. But he understood that. And you can't be a wartime prime minister without being a very ruthless man. And of course, he was a very ruthless man. Well, at the same time, he had a wonderful compassion at times, especially for the civilian, for the people of Britain and what they were enduring. But he always understood that you could not fight and win a war without enduring painful losses. And although I entirely share that Churchill did have many faults, did make many mistakes, but he remains probably our greatest war leader of all time. So, Max, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What's the book called? The book is called Operation Pedestal, The Fleet That Battled to Malta in 1942. I found it one of the most thrilling and moving stories I've ever had the opportunity to write. Well, thank you very much for writing it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.